for, I don't know, 10-ish years, I think. And we, I am, and I know Jared is as well, really grateful for this church community because you guys have shown us Christ. You've shown us love. You have been very instrumental in my own spiritual journey and developing my heart for God and my heart for his people and um, and being able to use different gifts and skill sets that he's given me. And I'm very grateful for that. So thank you. And I really am glad to be worshiping God together. Thank you, Chris and the team for leading. That was so special to spend time worshiping God, acknowledging who he is, that he's mighty to save, inviting the Holy Spirit here into our into our space, inviting our hearts to open up to him as well and um, to receive what the good things that he has to offer us. So I am excited to see what else God reveals about himself as we worship today. So we've been going through 1 Kings in a series that we've titled Elijah Bold Faith. And we've seen how Elijah, the prophet of God, has been challenging the nation of Israel and their current king Ahab to return from their worship of the false idols and begin following and worshiping Yahweh, their true God. So to repent, turn, and worship has been their, the cry that Elijah has been, um, been saying. And again and again, we've been seeing that God has been not just saying that, he's been revealing that to them through signs and wonders and great miracles. And still, Israel and Ahab have remained stubborn and their hearts have still been hard. We're going to pick up again in 1 Kings chapters 20, but before we do that, I did want to pause and pray and give space for us to meditate on who God is and quiet our hearts and allow God to speak to us and um, calm the internal noise that often is um, clamoring for our attention in our hearts and our minds. So I'm going to ask uh, Gary Stevenson if he wouldn't mind reading, I think, do you mind just coming up? I, didn't, I forgot to get the handheld mic. Sorry, Gary. He's going to be reading from Psalms 46. And as he, 46, and as he reads, I just encourage you to close your eyes and let these, these scriptures and these truths about who he is sink in to your heart. And I'll leave some space for quiet for you to um, hear from God and talk to God. And then I'll close with a quick word of prayer and we'll get into our passage. Mm hmm Psalms 37. There we go. Oops. 46. Yes, the whole psalm. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. 
He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God, I ask that you would still our hearts today. Our minds and our desires are pulling us in so many directions, Lord. The I wants, the I fears, the I needs, the I hopes. When we don't know, we want to control. When what we need is to have faith, to surrender, for your peace to penetrate our anxieties to stand firm on the solid truth that you are our hiding place. You are our hope. You are our strength and our shield. What can mere mortals do to us? You are our God, and in you we are secure. I ask that you would reveal your words to us, that you would show us your glory and your presence through your holy scripture. Thank you, Lord, that we are able to meditate on it and proclaim it boldly and without fear of persecution. May we not take this for granted, but may you bring your glory and your holiness into this space to transform our hearts and minds into the likeness of Jesus so that Langley and all the cities and all the world will know that you are a God that is alive. You are a God that saves. You are a holy God. You are a just God. You are a God who loves intimately and is engaged in the every detail of our lives. Thank you that you are that kind of God who loves us. Please do what I cannot. Confirm who you are by your Holy Spirit to the hearts and the minds of every individual in this place. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would reveal yourself in some new way, in a tangible way today, as you have in the past, that today would be a day we would say, God revealed himself to me in this way. That we may proclaim that and know that you are God and that the nations and the city of Langley may know that you are God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I won't have any PowerPoints or slides. This is a very visual free message today. So with that in mind, I do encourage you to pull out your smartphones or anything that you have to read the scriptures with us. Um, it's 1 Kings chapter 20. If you don't have an access to a Bible on an electronic or with you, we do have some hard copies at the Welcome Center. So if you want to go over and grab one, I definitely encourage you to do that. They're just sitting on the table on the edge there. Um, I'm going to be reading through the story, hopefully in a, a 
somewhat engaging way and true to its form. And in this story, we actually don't have Elijah. Um, we've been following Elijah, but in, in this particular story, there's an unnamed prophet. There's King Ahab, the king of Israel. And then there's King Ben-Hadad. King Ben-Hadad is uh, kind of like the guy, the bully on the school ground who was going to steal your lunch money. Or the guy at the bar who's just blood's boiling looking to stir something up and start a fight. So these are very dynamic characters and it's a quite engaging story. So, 1 Kings chapter 20. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army. Accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and their chariots, he went up and he besieged Samaria and attacked it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and your gold are mine. Your women your children, mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord the king, all, all I, have and I and all I have are yours. The messengers came again and said, well, this is what Ben-Hadad says. I sent to demand your gold and silver, your wives and your children, but about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send out my office, office, officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials, and they will seize everything you value and will carry it away. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, See how this man is looking for trouble? When he sent for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I didn't refuse him. The elders and all the people all answered, don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messenger, tell my lord the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, but this demand I cannot meet. They left and took the answer back to Ben-Hadad. Oh, now he's getting mad. Then Ben-Hadad sent another messenger to Ahab. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. And then the king of Israel answered, well, tell him, one who puts his armor on shouldn't boast like one who takes his armor off. Huh. Showdown. Ben-Hadad heard this message while he and the kings were drinking in their tents. He mustered his men, prepare to attack. So they prepared to attack the city. Meanwhile, a prophet named Ahab, king of Israel, announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hands today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this? Ahab asked. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The young officers of the provincial commander will do it. Okay, and uh, who will start the battle? Ahab asks. The prophet answers, you will. So Ahab summoned the young officers and the provincial commanders, 232 men. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all, and they set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk. 
The young officers of the provincial commanders went out first. And now Ben-Hadad had sent out scouts, dispatched scouts who reported, men are advancing from Samaria. So Ben-Hadad said, if they've come for peace, take them alive. If they've come for war, take them alive. Not a great way to start a battle. I lost my place. Okay, the young officials of the provincial commanders, they marched out of the city with the army behind them. And each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit. Then Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. And the king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and the chariots, and he inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. Afterward, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, strengthen your position and see what must be done because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram, probably pretty scared at this point, they advised him, uh, their gods were gods of the hills, yeah, yeah. That's why uh, we were, they were too strong for us, yeah. But if we fight them on the plains, well, we're sure to be stronger than they. So uh, do this, remove the kings from their commands, replace them with officers, and you must raise up an army like the one you lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, yeah, and then we'll fight Israel on the plains. Then surely we'll be stronger than they. King Ben-Hadad agreed. He agreed with them and he acted accordingly. So the next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. When the Israelites, who were also mustered, and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats, while the Arameans covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think that I'm the God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. For seven days, they camped opposite each other, and then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted a hundred thousand casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped on the city of Apec, where a wall collapsed on 27,000 of them, and Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in an inner room. His officials said to him, look, we've heard that the king of the house of Israel is very merciful, so let's go to the king with sackcloth around our waist and a rope around our necks. Perhaps he will spare our lives. Perspare. Wearing sackcloth around their waist and a rope around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. The king answered, is he alive? He's my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they said. Go get him, the king of Ahab said. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come up into his chariot. Oh, I'll, I'll return my cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You can set up your own, own market areas in Damascus, and my father did in, like he did in, in Samaria. And Ahab said, hmm. on the basis of a treaty, I'll let you go free. So he made a treaty with him and let him go. But the word of the Lord 
but by the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophet said to his companion, another prophet, strike me with your weapon. But the man refused. So the prophet said, because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. Then the prophet found another man and said, strike me, please. The man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet, sorry, lost my place. Here we are. Then the prophet went and stood on the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband around his eyes to make him look like he wounded, and actually he was. And the king passed by. The prophets called out to him, Your servant was in the thick of battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it'll be your life for his, or you will have to pay a talent of silver. But while your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed his headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, This is what the Lord says. You have set free a man that I had determined you should, should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his place in Samaria. I wonder what <clears throat> sticks out to you in this, uh, in this story. There's so much here. I mean, there's, there's comedy, there's error, there's tragedy, there's, there's a lot going on. Just take a moment as you think about this whole passage and everything that's happened. Yell out some of the things that you saw God doing. What was it that you saw about God? What kind of a God is he? If you were to just read this and find and, and you're just learning about this God, what would you be like, oh, that's the kind of God who's like this, I guess. Shout it out. What's he like? All powerful. Wins the battles. He's he speaks, doesn't like treaties. <laughs> yeah, he actually had uh, told Israel, like Israel should have known this, they weren't supposed to be make tre making treaties with the other nations around them. Right? They're supposed to be a holy nation separated from. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think of how God is acting now in context of everything else that we've learned about Elijah, we also start to see God is pretty darn patient, right? He'd already given Ahab plenty of opportunity to find out who he was and to obey him, and here he's giving him another chance. Yeah, those are all great observations. The one, as I was reading this passage, the, the, the one particular uh, phrase that stuck out to me was um, when the prophet came and told him that God would deliver the nations into his hand, and every time at the end, he would say he would do this so that you will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord. And if we remember, Ahab had a lot of chances to know that, but God's doing it again. And it kind of surprised me because I thought, well, you know, God, at this point, you'd have enough just cause to just let them kind of 
be taken away because they've been not following you for so long. But then I realized as I was reading scripture that it shouldn't actually surprise me because God is a God who wants to be known. He's a God of love and compassion. And it's something that he has already stated about himself to Israel at the very beginning of their covenant. When he has Moses go up into the mountain and he's going to make the Ten Commandments and put them on the tablets, he prefaces this covenant by stating who he is in this way. It says in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, And he passed in front of Moses, the Lord, and proclaiming, I am the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. If, Diz if Israel had an online dating site, that would have been the profile statement about God. <laughs> this is who I am. I'm a gracious and loving God, yet I'm just. Now I invite you into relationship with me. Covenant relationship with me. And he goes on to then, of course, after that, to list all the things he will do for them. He'll make them a holy special nation. They will be his special possession. A kingdom of priests. He'll fight for them and defeat their enemies. And he will treat them with mercy and grace and forgiveness, forgive their sins. In return, he simply asks them to love them with all their heart, their soul, and mind. To follow his words and obey him. And Ahab and Israel have been broken his covenant and gotten far away. And yet, while they are unfaithful, we see God holding true to what he's told them about himself. He is faithful. He is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And it is being played out across chapter after chapter and year after year in Israel's life. This is who he is. And he's calling them back to him, calling him back to that relationship, saying, come, love me again. Trust me again. Another thing that I, though we see through this passage, and particularly in that, that sense of God revealing himself, this is who he is, a God who reveals, a God that's loving and just and slow to anger. He cares about the nations. Not only does he care about Israel, but he cares about all the nations around them seeing him. The second time there's that battle, he, the nations think, oh, well, He's a God of the hills, so we'll just beat them on the valley, right? And then God says, look, I'm going to give them into your hand again because they think that. So part of his revealing himself this time around again is so that the nations will realize, no, he is the God, the true God. And that was also intertwined so deeply with the covenant relationship that God had with Israel and he made with Abraham, right? He's going to make them into a great nation, give them this land, be their special possession, and through them, all nations and all peoples of the earth would be blessed. That was always God's plan. And Israel, he's continuing to use Israel, whether in their faithfulness or not, to, to reveal who he is to the nations, to show his glory through Israel, to show his justice, his deep love and commitment. And through that, to make them like a signpost of who he is and draw them to himself. He is the one true God, and he desires to be known. The second observation that I um, made as I was reading through this came about 
and trying to understand what in the world the end of this passage had to do. Like the prophet who asked the other prophet to like hit him. <laughs> and the other prophet said no. And then gets killed by a lion. And then he asks another guy and he, he gets wounded and goes to the king. And I'm just like, okay, why is that whole thing in there? And like I wasn't quite understanding. And then his story to Ahab, pretending he was a soldier and asking the king for guidance and wisdom and being like, look, the man got away. And I'm, you know, and the king's saying, well, that's your punishment. And then him flipping it on the king, right? And saying, ha, you did the same thing. And I was like, okay, so how do I hold these things cohesively together? What is this saying about God and what God cares about? Like, I don't quite understand this. It seems like a harsh punishment to just send a line to kill somebody after they don't hit somebody. And <laughs> I'm glad there's no lions in Langley. Um, so I read some commentaries, and they were saying, I, I was quite grateful for the way they explained some of this, that sometimes the literary form that you see is sort of a, rep a rep repetition of a story. And in a sense, this is a moral story being told twice just so we make sure we get the point. And the first time, the whole point of the moral story is obedience. And the first, this prophet that doesn't obey and strike the man, is not he's not obedient. He says, because you did not obey the word of the Lord, you will be killed. And now he goes to Ahab, the exact same thing, because you did not obey the word of the Lord. It'll be your life for his life, your people for his people. So obedience is clearly important to God. But then I had to scratch my head because if you read through the Old Testament, you can read so much about obedience, right? There's so much in there. And if you glance through it, you just pick, you can pick up easily just this image of God who is like a rule, taskmaster, must obey these things to receive my blessings, da-da-da-da, right? And holding a magnifying glass, are you obeying, right? And every little mixture, everything's, you know, nice. But that doesn't hold up to what we just saw about God played out through history and what he described himself in his, pos in his profiles, dating profile, right? I'm the God who is compassionate and loving and merciful. So how does obedience and clearly obeying God is important? How does this mesh together? Well, obedience is actually symptomatic of a root problem. The obedience was a problem, but there was something deeper there that was being broken. John Piper, I turned to him to help me try and understand these concepts a little bit, and he, because obedience was sort of stated as the thing that Israel needed to do to, for, for the covenant. God's going to do all these things. He's be this. He's going to love them. He's going to care for them. He'll make them a special nation. All they have to do is listen to his word and obey, right? And so I thought, okay, how do I understand these concepts and, and pull together these aspects of who God is? And John Piper states that Israel upholds her side of the covenant by loving God and not putting any other value where God belongs in her heart. And out of this love for God inevitably flows obedience to his word because you always go after what you value. So this obedience is not earning God's grace, the way that's easy to see, obey and then you earn it, right? But this obedience should be the evidence of love for God's grace. God's not loved when we put ourselves in a position of an employee and him in this position of the employer who simply pays our earnings. Ahab's disobedience was symptomatic of a deep root problem. He didn't love God. He was breaking the covenant by 
distrusting God, not following God, not loving God, and out of that flows disobedience. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That was the first and greatest commandment. The Bible traces actually all of Israel's um, disobedience to the sense of lack of love and lack of belief, lack of believing that God is who he's going to say he is. You read it all through, through the Old Testament, the Psalms, and into the New Testament. They'll refer to this. Numbers 14.11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will you dis- people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs and the things that I've done among them. And Psalms, a lot of Psalms talk about this too, but Psalm 78 too says, because they did not believe in God, did not trust his saving power. And Hebrews 3.19, when it's talking about why the Israelites couldn't go into the promised land in the beginning, said, we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief, lack of faith, caused disobedience and hard hearted stance toward God and some very unwise choices and actions for Israel. Bruxy Cavey in his book titled Reunion, The Good News of Jesus for Seeker Saints and Sinners says this, remember we are designed to live in a love with God. Divine love is the spiritual air we were meant to breathe every moment of our existence. Once we begin to believe the lie, that God has gone, that God is distant, and that we are detached from his care. We may begin to make choices out of panic and self-preservation rather than out of love. And that is exactly what we've been seeing happening in Israel. The moment they get to distrust who God is, the moment they turn their gaze off of who God is and his promises and what he's saying and how he's revealing himself to them, He's being gracious. He's saving them. He's, he's, he's handing this battle into their hands, this other army. And they remain distrustful and seeking other things to put their trust in. It's happening again and again in Israel, and I definitely see it happening again and again in my own life, those moments when I feel distant from God. And God starts to speak to me about those things. I begin to see and to recognize some of the root of it is my my posture has, has turned a little bit from one of listening and trusting and learning from him and allowing him to reveal himself to me through the power of the Holy Spirit and grow in me a deeper love and affection for him and allow him to change my affections. And the moment I start believing those doubts about him, I don't know if he'll actually pull through on this. Maybe I should, you know, have a plan B. That's the moment my relationship with God begins to become distant. As I was praying for you guys this week and asking God what it was he wanted to show us, the biggest picture that came up in my mind was just that he wants to be revealed to us today, not just as he did in the Old Testament, like in the Old Testament, not just as stories, but he's a living God. He wants to be revealed. He wants his glory to be made known in us as individuals and as a church community. We are his prized possession. We know that we have a covenant just as they had a covenant with God. We have a covenant through Jesus and through his blood. 
And it's a better covenant because God promised, again through the prophets, looking forward to Jesus, saying, I will make a new covenant. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh and take away their heart of stone. I will write my laws, not on stone tablets, but in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will pour out my spirit on them. And that's the key difference. Jesus' blood transforms us. He forgives us. It's complete eradication of all sin that separates us from God and the Holy Spirit. The inheritance that we get to receive is the Holy Spirit indwelling our lives and the promise of relationship with him and a place in his kingdom. No longer just the nation of Israel, but God's heavenly kingdom with him as our true king. This is our call. This is our covenant relationship with God. But the moment we lose our stance of trust, of faithful prayer and dependence on him, and the moment we think we can do it our way or that we should trust other things, is the moment we find separation from God. And God desires Jericho Ridge to be his radiant bride. That is the language that the New Testament uses to describe church. It's a beautiful bride. You are a beautiful bride, church. Christ is transforming us. And as I prayed, I thought, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are in the business of revealing and transforming us, declaring who you are, a holy yet intimately loving us, God, and making us holy, not just for our benefit, but for Langley. Langley needs to see a holy God. They need to know this deep love and this, this never-ending, never-giving-up love. That's the phrase that we use in the kids' Bible that we use, that we read for Anthony. I love it. It's a never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. And they, God was, wants to use us as a signpost. He wants to have his glory, his power, his love expressed through us. He wants us to reveal it and to share it and to experience it. But for that outreach of the nations to see and be drawn and to know him as God, it, we have to be on our knees and in this posture of listening and loving, loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our mind, and all our strength. And I think God's promising some new things for us as a church. I think God's calling us to that. He's trying to expand our mind and our understanding of what he wants to do in us and through us. But there's also in the story we see with Ahab, we don't want to be like Ahab who was not in a posture. He didn't even ask God for help. If you think about the story, God just interjected and God said, hey, by the way, I'm here and I'll save you. He never even thought to ask for God's help. So we don't, and, and I think it can be easy to do that when we are doing good and we're in a season. It's easy to like just to forget. So I think there's that, that caution and that call to continue to be on our knees and trust him. And that's, that's not just up to us. God is saying, I'm going to actually show you that I'm trustworthy. And I think he's trying to say, please receive my love. You are my adopted children. I have been experiencing separation anxiety as an adopted child of God. I have been wrestling through that. I've had to come and acknowledge before God, I have attachment disorders, Lord. I know you love me and I have been hearing that you love me. Yet I have been having a hard time receiving it. And that's 
where faith comes in, that's where vulnerability comes in, that's where trust, and to say, I have to surrender to the work of your Holy Spirit. You need to fix this broken heart that is incapable of receiving your love. And say, please change my heart. Please help me to love you the way you deserve. Please show me who you are and allow me to receive and accept and feel and know that love to the deepest sense. And that is what I have been praying for us as a church, that we would deeply know and love God. We're going to invite the team up for worship now. And we've got communion here. And this is a wonderful ritual that the Lord has, Jesus gave to us that we can enter into as a way of remembering and calling our hearts back to him. Of remembering that he is, his body and his blood was broken and it was shed for us. He's inviting us to his table to receive his love and his grace. If you're having a hard time receiving his love today, I, I'll be praying for you and we pray for you and I pray that the Holy Spirit today would meet you in a real and tangible way. That you would know to the very core of your being that he loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would do again what I cannot. I cannot explain you enough. Your Holy Spirit, Lord, is needed to change our hearts to receive your love. And I know you are faithful to do that. You are here. You are stirring up our affections. You are stirring up our love and our commitment to you. Lord, please help us to be faithful in our response to worship you and to obey you out of this love, out of this deep faith, the faith that you are a gracious God and you will do what you say, that you will forgive. Help us to live a life of obedience and of trust so that the kids in our schools will know you and see you, our neighbors, would not be able to ignore your presence in our lives and the fact of what you were doing, that you are a holy God, you are a loving God. Thank you, Jesus, for your covenant. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. Thank you that you bore our iniquities. Thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to us now to speak to us and we invite you in to share things unseen, to speak to us things that we do not know and cannot comprehend. Soften our hearts, help us to be as vulnerable as you were spreading yourself out on that cross, laying yourself completely bare to say, I love you, this is who I am. This is who I am, I love you church, I love you. You don't have to be afraid of me. I love you. I want your well-being. I want to talk about those doubts. Don't turn away from me. I'm not scared about your insecurities and your sins. Come. 
taste that I'm good, taste that I love you, taste my sweet forgiveness. I've risked, I've risked my life, I've risked everything to reveal who I am. Would you risk a little and open yourself up just a little and taste my goodness? I am gentle, I am kind. Thank you, Jesus.
remaining in this posture of listening and receiving God's love, it's a great thing to say, but if I don't give you tools, I wouldn't be a very great teacher today. And so I wanted to make sure that I highlighted a couple of ways that have been helpful for me and for you. If you're a kid, I love this book. I really encourage you guys to ask your parents to buy it for you. It's called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing by Sally Lloyd-Jones and Jago. Interesting last name. It is full of just amazing artwork, and all they are are just simple one page. So if you can read, that's not too much to read. I really encourage you, every day before you go to bed, you take this book and you read that one page. It is so understandable and so rich. It really 